Welcome to RUF. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. If I've not had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Sammy. I'm the campus minister here. Um, and we've been going through the Gospel of Mark this semester. And tonight we're in Mark chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 30, really focusing on uh, the story that happens from 24 to 30. But for context, Mark 7, starting in verse 14. And he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said uh, to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared, All foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let me pray for us and then get into what is maybe a confusing passage for you. I'm going to do my best to set us up tonight. Let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, for the ways that it cuts uh, it just cuts through our hearts. It reveals, it reveals all kinds of things. It reveals our sin. It reveals our motives. It reveals um, all the things from which we need to be healed. And Lord, I pray that uh, as you alone can do by the work of your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray that as we come to think about what humility is tonight, our need for it, um, the great importance of it, that you would... Um, the one who humbled himself for us, that you would be our teacher, that you would um, be yet more beautiful and believable to us as our savior, as our friend, as the lover of our souls. We need all of this and more, and we look to you for it. We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. That's what I want to do. There are lots of directions that we could go tonight, but what I want to do is narrow in on how I think this woman, the Syrophoenician woman, Gentile, uh, supposed, supposed to be far from the kingdom as Jesus <laughs> is in his ministry, how she's this beautiful picture of humility for us. And what I want to do is think about, um, through, the, through the lens of her story with Jesus, I want to just think about three things, three questions. I want to think about why humility matters. I want to think about where it comes from. And I want to think about what it looks like. So when we think about humility, as we look at this woman and this exchange with Jesus, I want to think about why humility matters, where it comes from, and what it looks like. So first, why humility matters. 
Here's why I started with verse 14, is I want you to get the context uh, that is important to understand this woman. And here it is. Jesus has been trying to teach both the Pharisees and his disciples about how sin really works. Uh, The best way I could say it is they had a pretty low view of sin, and Jesus is trying to give them a high view of sin so that they can understand what he's come to do, so they understand what his ministry and his mission is. Uh, The Pharisees and the disciples, different, but similar, similar in that they had lots of rules and traditions, things to do, things to avoid that made them think they were not as sinful as they really were. Uh, in our time, one of the best, uh, he's actually a, a sociologist, his name is Christian Smith. He wrote this book called um, Souls in Transition about this age of life, college student age of life. And he's one of the first back in 2005 to coin this term that, that in our culture in America, and even within the church, a lot of what I grew up with and you grew up with is what he, he coined, what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. And he says there are five components to it. Uh, one, when we think about what is moralistic therapeutic deism, one, uh, this is what you believe, or we, we maybe came up in a culture that within moralistic therapeutic deism told us to believe. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's the deism part. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That's the moralistic part. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic part. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then five, good people go to heaven when they die. This is something like what the Pharisees and the disciples, if pushed, uh, maybe believed. It's something that's just in the water, not just in our day, but even in Jesus' day. And Jesus is out here challenging this low view of sin that says... It's about what you do and don't do, and it's not too hard to do or not do uh, these things. And Jesus is out here saying, absolutely not. That sin is something that is much deeper. That sin is more like a stain that you can't get out than it is like a checklist of do's and don'ts. That sin, and this is the context, comes from within, not from without. Uh, the, the image he gives that sin is like a river that flows from our hearts all up in our lives. That sin is as unavoidable as it is to avoid your very self. And even though the Pharisees and the disciples don't get it, this Syrophoenician woman does. And this is where the short, weird little exchange happens, where Jesus essentially, if we boil it down, Jesus essentially says, you're a dog. And her response, again, I think Jesus, we're getting Mark really humanizes Jesus. He's fully human. I think my best understanding of this passage is Jesus is using a bit of sarcasm here, that he's saying this a little bit tongue in cheek. We know that Jesus isn't mean. (laughs) We know that he can be very confrontational but we know it's never to put someone down. So I think there's a bit of sarcasm happening, but her response is what I want you to see. Because basically we could say her response is, yep, and this dog needs to eat. (laughs) Yep, and this dog is hungry. In other words, she's not offended. 
But she comes in humble boldness to Jesus because she sees that he's come for someone like her. I love the way that Tim Keller says it. He says it like this. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve based on my goodness. What she is saying is give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. You see that? Give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. Um, I've, I've had lots of Enneagram 4, so I've had lots of seasons and styles of life. Uh, but my seminary days were perhaps some of my most self-righteous. Like at one point, I think some of you have heard me say this before, at one point I decided that my fellow students weren't serious enough, and so I decided to start, <laughs> I decided to start wearing a bow tie and a, and a blazer and some penny loafers to class just to show my fellow students what a real scholar was. Um, I got real into defending the Southern Presbyterians because I thought that was the way. Uh, I just, there were lots, I was all about a particular kind. You don't, some of you know, the, the, regular, the regular principle of worship was like a hill I was going to die on. So anyone do any kind of contemporary stuff? I was like, are you really Christians? Um, not proud of it. But in this phase, I can remember, thankfully the Lord put us in a church that was very gospel centered and it bothered me. Because often our pastor would say, it was a little line, it comes from a guy named Jack Miller, where he would end almost every sermon with, cheer up, you're worse than you think. And I thought, no, (laughs) that's not good news. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. But I think this woman is giving us a glimpse of, that's actually humility. And humility is actually the only way for the gospel to be good news. Humility is actually the only way where you can actually be honest about your sin. Um, Thinking about why humility matters, think about it like this. Uh, Don't you long for humility, especially from your parents? Think about it. Some of you just went home for fall break. Think about going home for Thanksgiving and your dad or your mom pulls you aside and says, can we talk for a second? And they say, hey... This is a long time coming, but I really want to apologize to you because it's dawned on me that I've got a real anger problem, and it's not lost on me how my anger has landed on you and how my anger has hurt you, and I'm working on it, but would you forgive me? Like, can you imagine some of you, by God's grace, have parents that maybe can go there in humility, but we long for that kind of humility, To say, like, I'm willing to be honest about what I've done and who I am. Or imagine it this way. Imagine if RUF was a campus ministry, was a people that was known for deep humility. That people on campus just kind of knew from being around RUF people that we are slow to speak, but quick to listen. And even quicker to apologize that we really do see and care about needs all around us, the needs of others, that we're able to be really honest and specific about our sin and struggle and the ways that we need Jesus, that we laugh a lot because we don't take ourselves too seriously, that we love a lot because we know how truly loved we are, not because of our own goodness, but because of the goodness of Jesus. She's not saying to the Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And humility is the way she receives it. Why humility matters. And then second, think with me for a second about where it comes from. 
What's interesting about her story is that the disciples have been so much with Jesus, and yet it's this woman who really sees him, who really understands why he's come. And this is where her humble boldness comes from. She asks him, she comes to him, because she believes that he came to love and care for sinners just like her. Um, The reality is that humility is not natural to any of us. That humility is not natural even to those of us who have meeker, more people-pleasing personalities. That's not humility. We just hide, we just hide it better. That we're born into this world with what we could just call intense main character syndrome. Like I feel like social media just makes this worse. Where I can show up and it's not really, I can pretend even to care about your needs and what you're carrying. But the reality is I'm thinking so much about myself C.S. Lewis says it like this in one of the best chapters of all of Christian literature. Uh, it's called The Great Sin in Mere Christianity. It's about pride. But here's what he says. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves of. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, talking about pride. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. That's a word that I need. And yet here is Jesus, the only human we've ever known who is entirely free of pride and free of main character syndrome, even as the Son of God and is full of total humility. Jesus, who calls himself gentle and lowly of heart and invites us to bring all our anxieties and burdens to him because he cares for us. Jesus, who spent his life both giving himself in love and healing and ministry to everyone who received him, who needed him, And yet still finding time to withdraw, to give himself to the Father and be totally dependent on his Father. Jesus, who Paul said in Philippians uh, Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the Jesus that this woman trusted. This is the Jesus that this woman saw. The Jesus who could save her because of his humility. The Jesus who, as he healed this woman's daughter of the demon, was actually making his way to the cross to actually be treated like a dog. And this is the Jesus this woman saw and trusted. And this is the thing I want you to see. Is your salvation and my salvation depends entirely on the humility of Jesus. Um, We sing it sometimes like this. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. His mercy all immense and free for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Uh, a few summers ago, so in my peaks, 
one of my peak self-righteous. <laughs> you never, part of being a sinner is you just don't ever fully outgrow uh, seasons of self-righteousness. That's a little bit of bad news from a 43-year-old. But one of my professors, my favorite professor at the time, we would sometimes have, to the worship thing, we would sometimes have sessions in his office where we would just bash our, our church's music because it wasn't reformed enough. Um, he was the best lecturer by far on campus. Like He was a brilliant man, a brilliant lecturer. Um, and then as I made my way into RUF, we kind of lost touch. So for the first time in years, I had dinner with him a few summers ago. And when I tell you, as we sat down in a booth uh, at the WIG, RIP, across from one another, it was like I was sitting with a different man. Like he led with, first of all, his posture was just way different. Like he was very gentle and curious about me. I was like, this is, this is interesting. He led with, do you ever feel like when we look back on ourselves that you feel like you're fighting for the right cause, but you're actually on the wrong side because you're not with Jesus? And like when I tell you I was about to like fall out of the booth, I was like, who is this stranger? And what had happened as he began to share was he had gone through a really hard season of life, he and his wife. And I would venture to say, he didn't outright say this, uh, suffering changed him. Suffering brought him more in touch with the humble heart of Jesus. And he showed up as a different, humbled man. I, I love the scene in Narnia, you've heard me say it before, but it's when Eustace and his greed in this strange Narnian way gets turned into a dragon. And you, if you know the scene, Aslan, the movie's totally sold the bag on this, but in the books, the scene is so powerful because he has to come to Aslan and Aslan with his big claws peels back all of the dragon scales. And it's the image that Lewis says after Aslan has painfully torn off the dragon scales where Lewis Eustace describes it like this. And he caught hold of me and I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I would no skin on. And he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything but only for a moment. And after that it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I turned into a boy again. Part of childlike faith is humility. To know our need. And I love that line. I was very tender. As Aslan took off the scales of my pride, I was tender and I turned into a boy again. Humility comes from Jesus. Humility comes from looking at and resting in and being much with the Lord Jesus. And this is the last thing I want you to see is what does it look like? And this is a bit more practical. What does it look like when you begin to grow in the Lord's humility? I got five things. We'll go through them pretty quickly. What if I was like, prepare for another just give me another hour as we, I'm not doing that to you. Five things. <clears throat> Here's what it looks like. Number one, taking yourself less seriously. Taking yourself less seriously. The pressure is off. The work is finished. The verdict is in. It doesn't mean that we don't take our sin seriously, but it does mean that Jesus's love for us, we're so sure of it 
that his love for us is so serious and so real and his life and death so define us that we can die to our reputation and to our status and his life and death become everything. It's the old G.K. Chesterton line that I love so much. He says, angels can fly because they take themselves so lightly. And Jesus invites us to take ourselves less seriously too. Humility looks like owning your sin more honestly. Humility looks like saying, I'm sorry, a lot. It looks like going back to people you've hurt and said specifically, I'm sorry, I said that. I'm sorry, I did that. Will you please forgive me? Uh, This is the best parenting advice I ever got from a friend. As my kids were younger, I was asking that question, what does it look like to be a godly parent? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, being a godly parent means you say I'm sorry a lot. Full stop. Taking yourself less seriously, owning your sin more honestly. Three, giving yourself away more freely. I think one of the ways that pride works in us is it keeps us frozen and hidden in a way that nothing gets out and no one gets in. And the beauty of humility as the Lord loves us and and grows us in his humility is it unlocks the doors of this prison that we might let ourselves out and other people in. Uh, There's a scene in True Detective season three. First season, incredible, top-tier TV. Second season, one of the worst things I've ever seen. Third season, pretty good. But in the third season, there's this scene with Mahershala Ali where he's talking to his son, and he says, just this pretty simple line, he says, I'm sorry if I held myself back from you and wasn't the father that you needed me to be. He's saying, I'm sorry I didn't give myself more to you. Humility looks like giving yourself away more freely. For humility looks like listening long before we speak. It looks like listening long before we speak. Uh, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite things he's ever said, is he says, we, we talk a lot about sharing, like sharing the good news and speaking to people about Christ. But here's what he says. The question I put to myself is not how many people have you spoken to about Christ this week, but how many people have you listened to in Christ this week? How many people have you listened to in Christ this week? And could it be that often as we show up in humility, we don't always have the answer. We don't always have the the right, perfect thing to say. Sometimes we show up in ways that Job's friends should have shown up with Job. And this is what God rebukes Job's friends for at the end of Job, is we show up just with our presence. And we show up and just sit in the silence of painful things. And the fifth thing is humility looks like the grace of knowing what you were like five years ago, ten years ago. It's the humbling part of sanctification. It's like I can stand up here and talk about seminary me, but do you know what seminary me thought? None of those things. (laughs) Do you see how how humbling that is? Like when I was in that season, I didn't think I was wrong. And the humbling part is when I'm 58 or 53 or 50, I don't know why I'm going this way, I'm going to look back at 43-year-old me and be like, what? You, did, you said what? Maybe this is a sermon. Maybe the sermon. I'll be like, what? I don't think so. 
<laughs> but <laughs> to the point, right? <laughs> to the point. <laughs> but that, like when I look back on college, me, there's a lot of, and I think the gift from the Lord is not like I hate that person because the Lord didn't. But I think the point is there's, there's something humbling there. Uh, I'll close with this. There's, maybe you've heard me say this before, but uh, there's a story out of Charles Spurgeon life, Spurgeon's life that I love. If you don't know Charles Spurgeon, he was like one of the most gifted preachers of all time in London. Um, and there's a story where there was an elderly woman in this church who just hated him. And there's a story that he had preached a sermon, gone out the doors. He was kind of standing around with his people. And this woman decided she was just going to give it to him straight. And she came up to him. And here's how the story goes. She says, Mr. Spurgeon, you are the most arrogant, obnoxious, annoying man that I've ever heard of. And I wanted to be the one to tell you so. And the crowd was shocked. Kind of got quiet. Quiet enough to hear Spurgeon turn to one of his friends and say, she doesn't even know the half of it. He would later say, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with them, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Cheer up. You're worse than you think. And Jesus loves you a whole lot. And that's the birthplace for humility. Let's pray. Lord, would it be true? We can't do that for ourselves. Uh, We cannot do that apart from the work of sanctification um, that is your work in us. Uh, As you grow us, uh, Lord, to be more like yourself, uh, Lord, we need it. I pray that you would give us even the, help us to want to want it. Uh, Show us the places in our lives where we we are proud. And pride really does have a foothold. And Lord, that can be in so many areas. Lord, would you, in your love for us, humble us? And would you lead us? Lord, would RUF be a place known for its gospel humility? That we take ourselves lightly because we know how seriously you love us. And Lord, I pray that that would just be the heartbeat of what we're about. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. I'll stand and sing our our last song.